Everybody's awake this morning. That's good. That's the first part of being able to uh, take in God's word. You have to be awake. Uh, that's a, so that's a good start. All right. Um, uh, first of all, I wanted to tell you, we, uh, those of us who went over to Iowa uh, to experience the wild game feast over there, had a great time. I think uh, uh, Clint Banks uh, won a fishing rod, and, um, and I think Owen, uh, uh, Owen Franks also won a, uh, won a fishing rod and some other stuff. I think everybody went home having gained a few pounds and very happy. Uh, so that was a good thing. I'll also tell you that uh, if you're a man, uh, we have that fishing uh, trip coming up. We have seven spots left available. Uh, we can take 14. We have seven filled. Uh, we've got seven more available. So if you're interested, see me or see Rick, and we'll uh, we'll get you a spot, and you can catch uh, catch fish and uh, and hang out with the with a bunch of your brothers and have a have really a good time together coming up in April. So uh, if you're interested, see me, see Rick, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Um, I want to spend just a few minutes with you this morning talking about the idea as we're looking at the cross. Uh, last week I talked about how the cross, uh, the message of the cross is like a jewel or like a, like a beautiful diamond that you might buy. And it has all of these beautiful facets that reflect the light of the glory of God in a unique way. And one of the ones we want to look at, we're going to look at 13 of these over 13 weeks. We looked at Last week, we looked at the, the idea of Christus victor in the scriptures, that Jesus is the victor over sin and Satan and death. And this week, we're going to look at the concept of redemption. And just by way of kind of introducing that, I want you to shut your eyes for just a second. We don't want anybody to go to sleep, but shut your eyes for just a second and just imagine this. Imagine that you are deeply in debt. Maybe that's not hard to imagine for some of you. But imagine that you are deeply in debt, and imagine then that you lose your job and you can no longer pay your bills. And then imagine that instead of calling your attorney and saying, hey, I need to file chapter 11 or chapter 7 or something, I need to file bankruptcy, I need to get released from this debt, uh, your creditor comes to the door with the sheriff, and they put you in handcuffs, and they take you downtown to the slave market, and there you are auctioned off to cover your debt. Open your eyes. What would be running through your head at that moment? You know, understand that if you owed a lot of money, it would not just be you who would be sold, but also members of your family your wife, your children, and you would all be sold into slavery until such time as you could earn enough money for your slave master to be able to buy your way back out into freedom. And your family might be divided this way and that, and you might be in a different, go to a different home than your daughter's or your sons, or your wife. And every day, until you are able to earn enough money to buy your way out, you have someone 
who owns you. And every command that they give is one you have to follow at the risk of your life. You're a slave. You have no rights. You have, no, you have nothing that belongs to you. You have nothing that, um, you have no independence of your master. You do what he says or she says according to the way that they say it. Everything about you is owned by this other person. And you long for the day that perhaps a wealthy member of your family or or perhaps you yourself would be able to earn enough money to be able to redeem yourself. Pay the ransom price to get your freedom. And biblically, the concept of redemption has a lot to do with this, of people who have incurred a debt that they cannot pay, who have been sold as slaves to a master who orders them around and owns their life, who divides families, husbands from wives and parents from children, who treats us cruelly, and who eventually destroys us until the day comes when we are redeemed, when we are bought out of slavery. And, and one of the most common ways, actually, that you became a slave in the ancient world was just like I've described. You got into debt, you couldn't pay, you got hurt, maybe you couldn't work, and then all of a sudden, there was no foreclosure, there was no bankruptcy court, there was no release from debt, you were just sold as a slave. And you would be a slave until such time as you could pay your debt off. And biblically speaking, all those who are sinners are slaves to sin. According to the book of Romans, whatever you obey is your master. And you are a slave to sin. As long as you are a human being, you are a slave to sin until the day when your Redeemer comes. And if you want to look at the Scriptures as a whole and you want to summarize what the Scriptures are all about in one word, you can do it with this one, redemption. But they are about the fact that the whole world was corrupted and enslaved to sin and death until the day when Christ came as the Redeemer who purchased all of humanity with his death on the cross. That's what the whole Bible is about, and about the redemption of creation, even at the very end of all things. Uh, if you look at the history of Israel, it's about redemption. The entire nation went down in freedom to Egypt, where they became slaves, and then Moses came, and he redeemed them through the plagues, through the Red Sea crossing, and made them a nation by the power of God. It's about redemption. Uh, when the nation fell into sin and violated their covenant with God, they went into exile in Babylon and into Assyria, and then God brought a remnant of them out that wanted to go back to the land of their fathers and rebuild the temple and the wall. And then they were restored as a nation once more. It's about redemption. If you read the very end of the book, 
Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There's a lot of parallels between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where you have the renewing of the tree of life and mankind living in the presence of God with a garden and rivers that flow through, that give life. And everything is restored back to the way it was. It's about redemption. And Jesus Christ coming as a man into the world to save people from sin and bondage to sin is a story of redemption, of purchasing people out of slavery and giving them a new master and a new life. And we want to look this morning at one little passage that talks about this. This whole theme of redemption is literally shot through the Scriptures. Every other page that you look at, this idea of God has sacrificed himself to bring about redemption for his people. But we're going to look at one passage. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 9 and just five verses, 11 to 14. And we're going to look at the, the promise, the power, and the purpose of redemption. What was God doing? How did he do it? How was our redemption achieved? Uh, the, first, the first part is the promise of redemption. And there's a lot of passages I could go to. You could go to Galatians uh, chapter 4, 4 and 5, where it talks about at just the right time, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law and set them free and bring them redemption. You could talk about all kinds of passages. But we're going to look at just this one because Christ was promised and his coming was the fulfillment of promise. And this, this verse 11 is part of the beginning of a, uh, it's actually the tail end of a big section about the tabernacle that the writer of the Hebrews has been talking about the tabernacle and all this ceremony of the tabernacle. What the, what the tabernacle was, if you don't know, was a portable temple. It was a tent. Fabric walls, Post tent that traveled around through the uh, from the time of Moses until the time of King Solomon, the people of Israel worshipped God at the tabernacle, and it had exterior walls. And inside those exterior walls, there was a altar for you to sacrifice, and then there was a wash basin for the priests to get clean from all of the blood that would be on them from the sacrifice, and then there was an inner temple. It was part of that called the tabernacle, and it was divided into two sections, a, a holy place and a most holy place. And all of the objects of the tabernacle and later the temple, when they, built, when they made a permanent structure, were all arranged to point to Jesus, to the coming of a Messiah. And in fact, they're all, all the articles in the temple, from the Ark of the Covenant at the top, you go down into the, the Holy of Holies, and you've got the altar of incense, I mean, the most the, into the holy place, you've got the altar of incense right in front of that, and then on either side, you've got the table and the lampstand, and then lined up with that, you've got the wash basin and the altar, and they all make a symbol that you should recognize, <laughs> right, lined up. Even the construction of the tent itself and the way it was arranged and what it, each thing that it did symbolized 
was about Jesus and how when Jesus came, he would provide all these things. That he would provide for your physical needs, like the table of the bread of the presence provided people's physical needs who served at the tabernacle. That he would be the light of the world, just like the lampstand provided the light that enabled the priest to work. That the incense, which represented the prayers going up before God, would enable you to enter into the presence of God by your prayers. As that incense was burning, you would have the sacrifice that was provided, which enabled you to go into God's presence. You had the wash basin, which enabled you to be cleansed of all of your filth. All of these things pointed to Jesus, and they pointed uh, so that when Jesus came, people would recognize him and know what he was there to do. And it says that Jesus appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. In other words, this is written after the cross and looking back on the tabernacle and the, and the temple and that day and saying, look, Jesus appeared and he's a better high priest than what we had. Because all these things were designed to point to a better system because there was, they were limited. And, and we know that Jesus was better because he was able to not only be a better high priest, but he was able to go into the greater tent, the greater tabernacle, the one that's not made with hands, the one that's not of this creation. What's he talking about? He, what he's saying is this. God, when he gave the instructions to Moses on, the, on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai about how to build the tabernacle, said, make it according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. The pattern he showed him on the mountain was the layout of the very throne room of God. In other words, these things were a shadow and a copy of a heavenly reality that actually existed. And what he's saying here in Hebrews, uh, verse, verse 11 here of chapter 9, is that Jesus didn't enter into the earthly tent that was just a shadow and a copy. He entered actually into the very presence of God, the reality itself. So how do we know? Jesus was the high priest of a better, who gave us a, a better access to God. Well, for one thing, his access to God was more direct. He went directly into the presence of God in a way that the priests who served at the tabernacle and the temple never, never could. And he went into the one that the, the, the earthly thing only represented. Uh, all these things are an indicator of the promise of, of redemption being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, verse 12, down through the first part of verse 14, I want to look at the power of redemption. Remember, the power of redemption is Jesus' own blood. Remember that redemption is about the payment of a ransom. How many of you have seen that movie? It's an old one. Mel Gibson, back before he went crazy. Um, made a movie called Ransom. It's a great movie, right? Somebody grabs his kid. He goes on national TV. The kidnappers have asked for $2 million, and he says, I'm not going to pay. I'm offering $2 million as the price on your head. <laughs> okay. Do you have any friends who won't turn you in for $2 million if you're a thief? Bet not. 
And it's a great movie. It really is. It's, it's, it's quality entertainment um, because he gets his kid back, right? And me as a father, I can't even watch that anymore uh, because it just gets me at every level of fear that I have that someone would grab my child. But this is about the payment of a ransom that someone has grabbed you and held you captive. And Jesus comes and he pays the ransom price for you to set you free, to get his kid back, to get you back, to get me back. And if you look at the Old Testament system, you had unbelievable number of sacrifices and levels of purification you had to go through to be in the presence of God. Under the Old Testament system, you had a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every day, and then special sacrifices offered every week on the Sabbath, and then every month on the new moon, and then every season, every change of seasons, there was a feast and special sacrifices that had to be offered with that. And then at the new year, you had Yom Kippur with the Day of Atonement. And there were special sacrifices that had to be offered with that. And every day, week, month, season, and year, there was blood flowing out of this place. And he mentions specifically the, bulls of, the blood of bulls and goats. And that's a reference to the day, the day of Atonement. When on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the, the high priest would come in and he would lay his hands on a bull, the most valuable animal in your herd and flock. And he would pick a male bull, a year old, without any defects, and he would name his sins in public in front of the whole nation. And then they would slit the throat of that bull, and they would collect the blood in a basin. And then they would take a goat, and they would do the same thing, only this time they would take a male goat, a year old, without any defects, the best one they could find. And they would name all of the sins of the nation in public over that goat with their hands on it identifying their sin with the life of this goat and then they would slit that goat's throat and they'd collect his blood as it flowed out and then the high priest would take that basin of blood and he would go in to the holy of holies the most holy place that inner sanctum where the ark of the covenant was where God's presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelt in a cloud above the Ark of the Covenant. And that if you didn't do this correctly, you knew that what would happen to you is what happened to two sons of Aaron, that they were struck dead immediately for offering strange fire before the Lord. That There was an order to worship, and God is holy, and this is serious. And you are going to go in, and you're going to pour that blood over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and it's going to symbolize the covering of your sin and the sin of the nation and of the priest with blood. So that as those two angels that, look, that were on the top of the ark looked down, that represented God's holiness, that, that what they would look down and see is not your sin, but they would see the blood covering that. And what the, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is this, that when Jesus went into God's presence... When he went into the very holy place, into the very throne room of God, he came not by means of goat and bull blood. He came by means of his own blood. 
And because he was perfect, the redemption that he secures, because see, every time that sacrifice was offered, it was as if your, the judgment of God on your sins was postponed and put off another day. But you never really got permanent, complete, total redemption. When Jesus came as the high priest, he offered permanent, eternal redemption because the blood that he offered was his own blood. And every year for over 1,500 years, the high priest did this sacrifice with the bull and the goat, and the sins of the people were put off in judgment. One more time, one more time, one more time. But when Jesus came with his blood, eternal redemption was bought and paid for and done. And it's the blood of Jesus that is the, that is the perfect redemption and the perfect that provides the power for our redemption. Because it's by the blood of Jesus that we are able to enter into the presence of God ourselves. You know, only the high priest could go in and only once a year into the presence of God when the tabernacle or the temple stood. But now we're able to enter any time. Why? Because Jesus' blood covers over me so that when God looks at me in his holiness, he does not see my sin. He sees me covered by the blood of Jesus because my Sin has been paid for. The ransom price to set me free from slavery has been paid. And now I am free from slavery to sin. And Jesus had to be the one to offer the sacrifice because he was the perfect substitute, the only one there's ever been. Here's the reality. A, a human being has to be the, the thing which dies for humans because as much as you might love your goat, and as much as you might think a lot of your bull or of your lamb or sheep or bird or whatever, it's still not a human being. We used to have a hamster at our house, Fluffy. Fluffy died, and it was a tragic day. Okay? It was terrible. Fluffy died. But you know what? When Fluffy died, this was not nearly as big a deal to me. You know, we could have burial at sea in about five minutes, and then I'll go eat a sandwich and not shed a tear <laughs> over a hamster, which, you know, basically is a cute rat, right? Uh, but it's an animal at the end of the day. It's an animal. But if one of my children, anything happened to one of my children, I would weep forever. Why? Because it's my child, and the life of a child or of someone I love is so much more precious. And here's the thing. Only a human being can die for human sin because only a human being has equivalent value for another human being. A bull or a goat isn't going to do it. And only a human being who is perfect can pay for somebody else's sin. Because otherwise, they've got to die for their own sin. 
And only a human being who is not only perfect, but also God can pay for everybody's sin, not just me or you or some other single solitary person. And so it had to be Jesus, the God-man, who dies in our place. And the writer of the Hebrews is drawing a comparison. He says, look here. He says, look here. Under the old system, you had the blood of bulls and goats, and then if you wanted to go into the tabernacle and you were ceremonially unclean, you had to get sprinkled with holy water. And what they'd do is they'd take clean water and they would mix it with the ashes of a perfect heifer, a year-old female cow that's never had a calf. And they would take her and they would sacrifice her and they would burn her to ashes. And they'd take a little bit of those ashes and they'd mix it in with some water. It wasn't like paste or anything, but just a little bit of ash in this water. And it would. And then as you went in, you would be sprinkled with this water and it would ceremonially cleanse you so you were able to go into the presence of God, into the tabernacle. And he's making a comparison. He's saying, look here, bulls, goats, heifer water. That's, that worked for a while to cleanse people, enable them to come into the presence of God. But look over here. Now we have been sprinkled, not with heifer water and the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of Jesus over here. So this is like my, you know, little kick scooter, you know, versus my, you know, Mercedes 7 series over here. You know, this is not worthy to be comparison, not, not worthy to be, you know, yeah, they're both transportation of a sort, right? But me with the Mercedes, the big one, and a chauffeur up front is a lot better, right? I mean, how many of you vote for the scooter? <laughs> okay, yeah. Maybe a few of you kids think the scooter would be cooler than the car. Those of you who are adults, I'm sure you understand the value of the one versus the other. And that's what he's saying. Look here, these aren't even on the same plane. And Jesus buys us not just temporary redemption, not just temporary covering, not just temporary sprinkling to enable us to come into the presence of God, but permanent, eternal redemption, permanent release, such that we never can have to be enslaved again, ever. And there was payment under the old system, but this is better payment, perfect payment, eternal payment. And Jesus' death, as this passage points out, is the supreme triune act of God. And you can look at it. You can see the Trinity in this. Okay? Look at verse 14. The blood of Christ, who offered himself through what? The eternal spirit. And he offered himself, Christ offered himself through the Spirit to whom? To God the Father. And he came without blemish. He came as the perfect sacrifice. This is the supreme act of God's triune love for you and for me. This is redemption. Perfect redemption. Perfect release from slavery to sin. 
It was God to whom the sacrifice was being made. It is God whom we worship, and we bring the very best that we have. And Jesus was the completely acceptable, perfect sacrifice before God. He paid the penalty. He paid the ransom price. He bought us from slavery. And, de- and Jesus did not simply do this, by the way. This is the last part of verse 14. I want you to see this. Jesus did not simply do this because he was a nice guy who loves us. You know, I see that these people were really in need of redemption. And, I mean, gosh, I mean, you know, look at Joe. He's, he's wonderfully special. I think I'll die on the cross for him. No, it wasn't simply that Jesus looked at us and saw our need and loved us and decided to lay down his life for us, although certainly we should never underestimate that. It was also to save a people for himself. Look at verse 14, very end, to serve the living God. It was to buy us out of slavery and give us a new master, the living God, so that we'd be able to perfectly worship him, so that we would be able to be involved in in his family, to be adopted as his sons. And every now and then I get asked this question, how could a loving God send people to hell? And one good response I have given is this, a loving God sent his son to buy you out of slavery to sin and death so that you would not have to go to hell. And so if you go to hell, you paddle your own canoe, pal. Because a loving God has already done everything that needed to be done to secure your release from that punishment and death. A loving God has already done that. And we need to remember that sin always destroys and always enslaves and always leads to death. Always. And so when you meet someone who's an addict, let's say, you know, don't meet someone who is experiencing joy and freedom. You meet someone who is desperately in need of release, who is desperately in need of someone to help them, someone to help them escape from slavery. And sin is a form of, re- of addictive rebellion against God, that the more you do it, the more you want to do it, the more it destroys your life. And it, Over and over and over, as you sin, you separate yourself from God, who is the very one who is trying to set you free through the blood of Christ. And he has set you free so that you might serve a better master, one who doesn't destroy, one who doesn't bring death into every relationship and aspect of your life, one that brings you rather freedom by serving him. And here's the thing, as Bob Dylan sang, you're going to serve somebody. You are. You're going to either serve self and sin and death or Jesus and freedom and life, one or the other. Here's the thing. There are over one million people bought and sold as slaves every year in our world today. But you know what? There are far more people than that who are slaves to sin every day of their life. And you might be one of them. And here's the thing. You can't ever buy your way out. You can't ever get freedom 
from sin on your own by your efforts. Well, I'm a really nice guy, Pastor. I mean, you haven't seen. I mean, I go to visit my hospitalized mother at the nursing home every day for two hours. And on top of that, I give a lot of money to this church. And on top of that, I've never beat up my kids. I've never raised my hand to my spouse. I've never uh, murdered anybody. I'm a pretty good dude. And you know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says that if you don't know Jesus, you're a slave to sin. And you will one day be destroyed by it. And Jesus came to set you free. And if you are a person who already knows and serves and follows and loves and been adopted by God into his own family with Jesus as your brother, you know what the scripture says to you? It says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. And the rest of that scripture says, honor God with your body, but not just with your body. Paul says it this way, Romans uh, 12.1 is, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why would we do that? Because we have been bought and we recognize the great cost that God paid to bring our redemption. And because of that, we honor him with our life. And today, we're going to celebrate, as we take communion, the cost that was paid for us. For that, we're going to have Rick and the worship team come and sing and help us prepare our hearts uh, for taking communion together. So, Rick and guys, if you'd come. <laughs> 